Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, Nehemiah chapters 6 and 7. I need you to be a little bit tolerant of, of me today because it may seem at first that I'm wandering. I hope I'm not. But I do feel strongly led to go in this direction to bring you an important connection that can be easily overlooked in our study of Nehemiah. So I'm going to do that right now. I want to open today's lesson on Nehemiah with this small detour because I've regularly asked you to notice how we could nearly transplant Nehemiah, the conditions facing Judah and Jerusalem and the Jewish people, as well as all their various antagonists and enemies right out of their place in the Bible at 420 B.C., it's the time of Nehemiah, and into the modern day world of 21st century Israel. Astoundingly, it would all look about the same. The issues and the troubles would be about the same. The reasons for the issues and the troubles would be about the same. And the explanation for this head-scratching sameness that is found between these two distant eras actually traces back further yet to when God changed the world in the most profound way but almost nobody noticed. It happened when he ordained what we call the Abrahamic Covenant. Now the Abrahamic Covenant was the moment at which God carved out a single person from among all other humans in existence to create a group of people that would be set apart for himself. And through this distinct and separated new people group, God chose to bring about the redemption of humanity. The Lord determined that this single person, Abraham, would increase from a small Middle Eastern family into a clan then from a clan into his own tribe, and then finally into a great nation of people that consisted of many tribes. God himself would protect and nurture them. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this. Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house. Go to the land I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice the use of the words away, go. This covenant is based on a mysterious and almost unfathomable irony. It is that through division, election, and then separation of the human species into two distinct groups, one attached to Abraham, called Hebrews, 
The other one that consists of everybody else called Gentiles. Out of this, there will eventually evolve some kind of ill-defined unity in which those coming from Abraham, the seed of Abraham, will be the agency of God's blessing for everyone else, meaning all the Gentile families of this world. This ministry received its name to honor and declare our participation in this pivotal covenant that began the redemption process. Now the words of Genesis 12 say that Abraham is to completely separate, to go away from his country, even from his extended family. He can no longer consider himself to be part of his biological father's lineage. Abraham was the physical, tangible, earthly separation of a divinely chosen group away from all other human beings that would be the visible image of the invisible spiritual separation of Abraham's faith in God from all other faiths and gods. The physical and the tangible separation naturally led into the Hebrews developing their own identity. This identity was represented by their own customs, their own traditions. And after God first sent the Hebrews to Egypt as guests of Pharaoh and of Joseph, where they would multiply to around 3 million people, and then later, after God delivered the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt and redeemed them, Next, he gave them the Torah, which centered upon the law of Moses. And this divine Hebrew Magna Carta liberated, refined, and it reset the lifestyles of the Hebrew Hebrew refugees in a way that at once corrected and set straight their spiritual beliefs, but it also fully integrated those beliefs into their human behavior. The Torah defined everything for them. From how to conduct their relationship with God to how to conduct their relationships with humans, Hebrew and Gentile. Relationships with animals. With their earthly environment in general even including the soil they lived upon. This resulted in a uniqueness and a distinctiveness of culture and religion and daily life that was not only in harmony with God's heavenly principles, but was also in obvious contrast, I'd say even in direct opposition, to other cultures and and religions lifestyles of everybody else on this planet. This unique Torah lifestyle was to be strictly maintained as a sign. It was a sign of trust, of loyalty. It was uh, a visible acknowledgement of their separation for Yehovah, the God of Abraham, the living God of all creation. And so by the very nature of their relationship with God, 
the Hebrews' ways were designed to be intolerant of other gods. Intolerant of other ways. All Gentile, of course. And at the same time, those Hebrew ways were intolerable to the Gentile cultures of the world. This ongoing separation was assured. But so was enmity assured between Hebrews and other cultures. And to reiterate, this was all the divinely planned intention and consequence of the Abrahamic covenant. So naturally, fallen humanity and their leader, Satan, began and continues to try to dilute, to try to undo what God had done through Abraham, knowing if accomplished, it could possibly defeat God's plan of redemption. We fast forward now from Abraham to the time of Nehemiah. Why was it so terribly important to the Lord that first the Jewish exiles of Babylon would be returned back to their own land instead of merely being allowed to remain in peace in the Persian Empire where they now were, where they were welcomed. And then second, Ezra would be sent to reform the priesthood and and reestablish the Torah as the societal basis for the Jews of Judah. And then finally, Nehemiah was sent to put up a wall. A wall that only Jews could participate in constructing, only Jews could live behind, only Jews could control the holy city of Jerusalem. Why did he do this? It was to reestablish the uniqueness of Hebrew culture upon the very land promised to Abraham. And to once again visibly and tangibly divide and separate God's people from all others. It was to continue in the purpose and in the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So as we continue in our Bible study, when we see Nehemiah make the the decision to adamantly oppose any interference by it, and, and, and to prohibit any inclusion of the local Gentile rulers and their people as concerns the matters of Jerusalem, Judah, and, and Jewish culture, it is the protection of the Abrahamic covenant that we are seeing. Did Nehemiah consciously realize that that's what he was doing? I don't know. But if so, it was probably only indirectly. But what he did directly realize, and he acknowledged it time and time again, was that rebuilding Jerusalem was God's specific will. And so God was orchestrating it all, And Nehemiah, as was Ezra, were willing vessels to do something that would, of course, infuriate the local Gentile potentates 
surrounding Jerusalem as well as to go against the grain of some of the Jews who found certain benefits from having a great tolerance for, if not alliances with, the enemy. This same battle for the continuance of the Abrahamic covenant is today occurring within the modern state of Israel. Even though the majority of Jews and Gentiles, and especially our leadership, including Christian leaders, have no awareness of it. And why would most Christians be aware of the nature of this battle if they are taught that God not only did away with the covenant of Moses, the law, the Torah, a belief that has become the second most foundational doctrine of the church next to salvation in Jesus, but that by the same logic that all previous covenants from God are now null and void, and that includes the Abrahamic covenant. So through the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord created a culture, the Hebrews, that felt that because of their set-apart nature, it would be impossible for anyone born outside of that unique Hebrew culture to come and join, join it in brotherhood unless that person completely renounced not only their former gods but also the heritage they were born into. This would necessarily include willingly dissolving their former national ties and their allegiances. And the outward expression of this renunciation and now a new brotherhood with the Hebrews would be, of course, the complete adoption of the unique Hebrew culture and lifestyle. Since Babylon, that unique Hebrew culture and lifestyle has become encapsulated, outwardly anyway, in Judaism, which has steadily evolved into a system of traditions and behaviors. <clears throat> this reality has played a, a, a defining role in the New Testament. When Paul was taking this gospel message to Gentiles and he was trying to explain that while faith in Yeshua Gentiles were indeed joined to these Hebrew covenants established by the Hebrew God. That didn't necessarily involve Gentiles renouncing their own cultures and adopting all the outward cultural expressions of Jewish culture that were most visible in the traditions and the behaviors that were required by Judaism. And yet... It's not as though every aspect and tradition of Judaism was bad or wrong or ought to be shunned. So what was going on with Nehemiah? What is going on with modern day Israel? What is going on in Judaism and in Christianity has a common beginning point. The covenant of Abraham. 
And we must never lose sight of this reality or we will lose all context for understanding the world of the Bible and even of our world as it is today. Well, with that, let's pick back up where we left off last week in Nehemiah chapter 6. And it was at this point that all the attempts of Sanvalat, Toviah, and Geshem the Arab to get Nehemiah to travel to a place called the Ono Valley to have a meeting with them had failed. These meeting invitations were in the form of a particular message sent to Nehemiah four times. And each time, Nehemiah rejected it because he suspected that their intent was to assassinate him. A fifth message was sent, but this one was meant as a means to spread a rumor. And the rumor it hoped to initiate was that Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem to use it as a citadel of rebellion against King Artaxerxes. And that Nehemiah was about to declare himself as king of Judah. Now Nehemiah denied it. He told the ruler that this pack of lies would still not coerce him to a meeting that would likely result in his death. So next, these persistent Gentile leaders tried a new tactic altogether. And they enlisted the services of a prophet, or better, a false prophet, named Shemaiah, whose job it was to try and convince Nehemiah that he was in imminent mortal danger and convince him to abandon his post and flee for his life. Or, alternatively, he should go with Shemaiah into the temple, enter the sanctuary and lock the doors in order to escape a plot to assassinate Nehemiah. Nehemiah refused to run away, leaving his people to the wolves. He also refused to stay but to hide inside the holy temple because God's laws prohibited anyone but Levite priests to enter and Nehemiah was a layman. So once again, we see a godly leader who exhibits obedience to the Lord, courage in the face of personal danger, and unwavering leadership, but with a shepherd's mentality. In contrast to some typical worldly local leaders who cared only for their own power, agenda, and wealth. Nehemiah is a man for all seasons. He is a leader for us to pattern ourselves after. So let's reread now the last few verses of Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll start reading at verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1136. 1136. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about it and the surrounding nations became afraid, our enemies' self-esteem fell severely because they realized that this work had been accomplished by our God. And during this same period of time, the nobles of Judah sent many leaders to Tovia, and Tovia kept send, uh, many letters to Tovia, and Tovia kept sending them replies. For there were many in Judah who had sworn allegiance to him. 
because he was the son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of uh, Arach, and his son Yochanan had been taken as his wife, uh, had taken as his wife the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. They would even praise his good deeds in my presence, and then they'd pass on my words to him. And Tovia kept sending letters to intimidate me. This chapter concludes with some important historical information. It is that from the moment Nehemiah ordered the wall rebuilt and the work commenced upon it, it took only 52 days to get the walls rebuilt to a point where there was a completed protective fence around Jerusalem without gaps in it. However, the wall was rebuilt to only half its original height. Later, they would add to its height, but without nearly so much urgency needed. The wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul, only days before Yom Kippur, and less than a month before the start of Sukkot. So this work was accomplished during the hot summer months that made it all the more difficult. Yet because it was summer, there was an advantage because there were more hours of daylight than in the winter. So a lot more work could get done. This also means that from the time Nehemiah first received his royal commission to go to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem to when the wall was completed to its half height was a mere six months. What an accomplishment. And while Nehemiah deserves the greatest credit for his planning skills, for his persistence and refusing to be deterred from his mission, even by the threats on his life, It was the zeal with which the Jewish laborers worked that is so inspirational. It was truly a community-wide, cause-driven, and sacrificial effort. Because these laborers had to set aside their own best interests in doing their, their farming for their families to have food so that they could devote their work hours to rebuilding this wall. Even so, let us realize, for the sake of intellectual honesty, that although a number of previous administrations had tried and failed to rebuild that wall over the past century, each had made some amount of progress. So what Nehemiah and the Jews of Judah accomplished began at a point of construction that was far advanced from what Zerubbabel, found waiting for him as he led that first group of Jewish exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now I can't help but chuckle, a bit of an evil little chuckle, when we uh, read in verse 16 of these Gentile rulers and their people who did everything short of war to try to subvert the Jews from rebuilding the city, uh, falling into depression, we're told, losing self-esteem over the sight of this completed protective barrier around Jerusalem. But what really put a chill over them was that they knew that such an accomplishment was because of Israel's God. Battles of this kind were regularly seen as battles between the gods of the different nations as much as it was between people. And to the mind of the ancient 
that the Jews did this in such an expedient fashion was proof positive that their God was more powerful than the gods of all those who opposed them. Verse 17 now is sort of an additional commentary. It's not about what came next, but rather it provides us some additional information about the sorts of things that had gone on during this period of wall building that had just concluded. And what we find is that certain unnamed leaders and aristocrats of Judah, Jews, had been having correspondence with these pagan enemy rulers. And without doubt, these Jews acted as informers who kept Tovia and Sanvlat well apprised about what was happening behind those walls. And as yet, as one would expect to happen, and as we remember the mass divorces that Ezra required of those Jews who had married foreigners, many relationships involving family ties had been created between the Jews of Judah and the Gentiles of Samaria and Ammon. Thus we read that Tovia was actually the son-in-law of a Jew. And Tovia's own son, Yochanan, married a Jewish girl. So, the Middle East being what it is, those extended family members were generally bound to remain an ally with Tovia, even if their personal sympathies might lay with Nehemiah. In fact, verse 19 explains that these Jews who were related to Tovia tried to speak on his behalf to Nehemiah, and then whatever Nehemiah had to say about Tobia in return was reported right back to him. Bottom line, Tobia manipulated his Jewish in-laws and his friendships with some other influential Jews to try and convince Nehemiah to cave in to him. So Nehemiah had insiders working against him that no doubt caused him to take certain steps that may not have been particularly popular with the common Jews, such as when he wouldn't allow the uh, Jewish family men to return home at the end of the day, but rather they had to sleep inside Jerusalem. However, as their leader, the wise and experienced Nehemiah knew some things about some of these Jewish nobles who had ties with their enemy. Things that he couldn't share with the common Jews. So Nehemiah had to navigate this tangled situation with as much delicacy as strength. Now I'm going to tell you a little secret. The job of a leader is certainly not to alienate or lord over those he's leading. But neither is it his first duty to make friends and try to satisfy everybody. Sometimes a leader must see through a person who seems sympathetic, maybe popular, or on the surface looks well-meaning and harmless enough. But in reality, that person's only waiting for an opportunity to subvert, manipulate, and otherwise cause division, if not havoc. 
This problem is one of the most common social dynamics found within a group. And one of the most common things an experienced leader always knows to be on the lookout for. Those not in leadership usually don't know about it. And they don't detect it until it's too late. Because they have other duties and interests and personal gifts. So they don't know about things that have gone on behind the scenes, which the leader is well aware. That was precisely the case for Nehemiah. He was always in the crosshairs of somebody. Not just his enemies, but also of those Jews who pretended to be loyal friends and followers. And he handled it about as well as it could have been handled, but not without some of the inevitable fallout. We haven't encountered, if you'll notice, anything that tells us that Nehemiah was well-liked or popular. He was simply someone with high integrity who got the job done when nobody else could. In fact, we've seen him regularly going before the Lord, essentially saying to God, You know my heart, Lord. You know my purposes and why I'm doing what must be done. So you, you please give me merit for it. I can't help but believe that these pleas to the Lord were because he often had criticisms leveled at him. Some of them deserved, some of them not. And there was no end to the complaining and the second guessing. But he proceeded calmly and confidently because he understood that this was just all part of the job description. A job God offered to him. A job he signed up for. So with that, let's move on to chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. Starts on page 1136 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. looks a little long, but it'll go pretty fast. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set up its doors and the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites had been appointed, I put my kinsman Hanani in charge of Yerushalayim along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and he feared God more than most. And I said to them, The gates of Yerushalayim are not to be opened until the sun is hot, and while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors. And you put up the bars. Appoint watchmen from among those living in Jerusalem, and assign each one his time to guard, and have each one serving near his own house. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses hadn't been rebuilt. My God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the leaders and the people so that they could be registered according to their genealogies. Now I located the record of the genealogies who of those who had come up at the beginning and found written in it. 
Here is a list of the people of the province who had been exiled, carried off to Babel by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, who later returned from exile and went up to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. They went with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nachmani, uh, Mordecai, Bilshan, Meshperet, Bigvai, Nahum, and Bana. The number of men from the people of Israel, descendants of Parosh, 2172, descendants of uh, uh, Shfatya, 372, descendants of Arach, 652, descendants of Pachat Moab, and the descendants of Yeshua and Yoav, 2818, descendants of Elam. 1,254 descendants of Zatu 845 descendants of Zakai 760 descendants of Benui 648 descendants of uh, Bavai 628 descendants of Azgad 2322 descendants of Adinakam 667 descendants of Bigvai 2067 descendants of Adin 655 descendants of Ater of Yechitsia 98 descendants of Hashum 328, descendants of Betsai, 324, descendants of Harif, 112, descendants of Givon, 95, people of Beit Lechem and Natofa, uh, Natofa, 188, people of Anatot, 128, people of Beit Azmavet, 42, people of Kiryat Yarim, Kifirah, and Beirut, 743, People of Ramah and Geba, 621. People of Mikmash, 122. People of Beit El and I, 123. People from the other Nevo, 52. People from the other Elam, 1,254. Descendants of Harim, 320. Descendants of Jericho, 345. Descendants of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. Descendants of Saniah, 3,930. Of the priests... Descendants of Yeriah of the house of Yeshua, 973. Descendants of Emer, 1052. Descendants of Pashur, 1247. Descendants of Harim, 1017. Of the Levites. Descendants of Yeshua of Kadmiel, of the descendants of Hodba, 74. The singers, descendants of Asaf, 148. The gatekeepers, descendants of Shalom, descendants of Ater, descendants of Talmon, descendants of Akuv, descendants of Hatiah, and descendants of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, descendants of Zicha, descendants of Hasufa, descendants of Tabot, descendants of Keros, descendants of Siah, descendants of Padon, descendants of Lebanah, descendants of Hagava, descendants of Salmai, descendants of Hanan, descendants of Gidel, descendants of Gahar, descendants of Reiyah, descendants of Redzin, descendants of Nakodah, descendants of Gazam, descendants of Uzzah, descendants of Pasiach, descendants of Besai, descendants of Meunim, descendants of Nefishim, descendants of Bakbuk, descendants of Hakukva, descendants of Harhur, descendants of Batslit, descendants of Machilda, descendants of Harsha, descendants of Barkos, descendants of Sisra, descendants of Temach, descendants of Natsviach, descendants of Hatifa, and the descendants of Shlomo's servants. 
descendants of Sotai, descendants of Soferet, descendants of Prida, descendants of Yala, descendants of Darkon, descendants of Gidel, descendants of Shafatya, descendants of Hatil, descendants of Pokoret, Hatzvaim, and descendants of Ammon. All the temple servants and descendants of Shlomo servants numbered 392. The following went up from Tel uh, Melach, Tel Harsha, Kruv, Adon, and Emer, but they could not state which father's clan they and their children belonged to. So it was not clear whether they were from Israel. Descendants of Delia, descendants of Tovia, descendants of Nakuda, 642. And of the priests, descendants of Havia, descendants of Hakots, and descendants of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was named after them. These tried to locate their genealogical records, but they weren't found. Therefore, they were considered defiled. They were not allowed to serve as priests. The Tirshita told them not to eat any of the specially holy food until a Kohen, a priest, appeared who could consult the Urim and Tumim. And the entire assembly numbered 42,360, not including their male and female slaves, of whom there were 7,337. They also had 245 male and female singers. Their horses numbered 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Some from among the heads of the father's clans made contributions for the work. The Tirshita contributed to the treasury a thousand gold darkmonim, fifty basins, basins and five hundred and thirty tunics for the priests. Some of the heads of the father's clans gave into the treasury for the work twenty thousand gold darkmonim and twenty two hundred silver manim. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold dark monim, 2,000 silver manim, and 67 tunics for the priests. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. When the seventh month arrived, after the people of Israel had resettled in their towns, and then we move on into chapter 8. We'll stop here. First, because I need to drink water. And I'm not repeating that. Now, some time has passed since the end of chapter 6. No doubt, many weeks, maybe a couple of months. And saying the walls were complete is in relation to hanging the doors so that a completed defensive perimeter was formed. Now work on the walls would still continue for quite some time as they needed to be built higher than their present height of around 15 feet in order to give the type of protection that was needed against armies as opposed to guarding against unwanted thieves and bands of marauders. Now we stop hearing now of Sanvalot and Tovi at this point, but that doesn't mean they've thrown in the towel. This is the Middle East, and time definitely does not heal all wounds. Shame and honor still mattered. And Sanvalot, Tovia, and Geshem, and others had some level of shame they were undoubtedly seething over because of being outfoxed by this Jewish Nehemiah and thus making them look foolish in front of their own people.
So watchfulness by the Jews was still required. So the first thing we hear upon completion of the walls is the establishment of a system of guards and watchmen atop the newly built gates. However, it's most curious that we read of Levites and singers, who were also Levites, being appointed as gatekeepers and as guards. This is hardly the job of temple workers. So some scholars see this as some type of later addition to the original text. There is no evidence, by the way, for this, other than these scholars just don't think these words belong there. However, if we assume that the text is correct, then considering the very light population of Jerusalem at this time, and what we could what could only be called a continuing state of emergency, at least in Nehemiah's estimation, it is reasonable to think that there was little choice, but at least for a time, to enlist some readily available temple workers to augment too few laymen as watchmen and guards. After all, the bulk of the laborers would have gone back home, back to farming after completing their obligation to finish the wall. Well, in verse 2, we see Nehemiah staffing his governor's administration now that a reasonable level of security has been achieved. His brother Hanani, another fellow of a similar but a different name, Hananiah, are assigned as co-administrators over Jerusalem. The, net, the text calls Hananiah the commander of the citadel. And I think this possible, probably means he was part of that royal bodyguard that came with Nehemiah from Shushan in Persia. That is, he was a military man. So it made sense to assign him as the chief commander of the defense of Jerusalem. We already know of Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, because he was the one who brought the plight of Jerusalem to his brother's attention and got the ball rolling in the first place. Well, verse 3 is another one that some scholars consider a problem. They see it as somewhat an unintelligible passage. Admittedly, it is not clear, and at least not in the way that Westerners would construct sentences. But we must allow that what is said here is said by someone over 2,000 years ago in a Hebrew culture. So likely it made perfect sense to him. The gist of it seems to be this. The non-Levites of the city were organized into a rotation system of guard duty. Many residents' homes, you see, were literally built into the city wall. This was a usual and common practice of that era. So those residents were specifically assigned to watch the wall sections where their homes were located. But as an extra precaution, for the short term at least, the city gates were to be closed when the sun was at its hottest. And then, it's assumed, the gates would be reopened by these same guards as the early afternoon passes. Now this might seem strange as to why they would do this. But SR Driver has discovered at least two documented instances in Roman times when city gates were overrun because it was a habit of the soldiers to take a nice siesta after eating lunch. 
And this practice was well known by the enemy. And since in our story it was lay people that were being used as gate guards, it would be all the more tempting for those guarding the Jerusalem gates to take a little time off after lunch and relax, figuring who would attack at the hottest time of the day and in broad daylight to boot. So Nehemiah's solution was essentially to close the city gates during that time and not reopen them until the people on guard duty were ready to be alert again. I think that's pretty clever. Now we run into a very serious demographic problem that Nehemiah knew had to be solved as rapidly as possible. After the wall was finished, the next task was to increase Jerusalem's population. Without that, Jerusalem would never be truly secure and the economy would continue to languish. We need to grasp that Jerusalem was significantly smaller at this time than prior to their Babylonian exile. However, the main advantage to being inside a city was the protection of its walls. Until just now, there had been no walls. So, most common Jews made their homes in the countryside so that they could farm for a living. Those who were now farmers, they had no interest in abruptly abandoning their fields and moving into city, into the city for a city life. Thus, many destroyed homes inside the city wall still lay in ruins and there was none who seemed interested in rebuilding them and living there. So, what to do? And in response to this dilemma, we're told that God inspired Nehemiah with an idea. And this idea began by drawing up a genealogical listing of all Jewish families who had returned from Babylon and find out where they were now living. The goal was to relocate some of them to Jerusalem. And as he was formulating his plan, trying to figure out just how to perform his census, a list was discovered. A list of families with their genealogies and where they went to in Judah upon their returning from Babylon. Nehemiah felt that this was a great stroke of luck and no doubt this was the best place to start. The list we read here from Nehemiah 7 is the same one that we found back in Ezra chapter 2 so we can be certain of its source. The two lists are not identical but they're very close. And the minor differences are because their purposes were different. The order of the names, some of the numbers associated, spellings of some of the names and things of that nature vary a little between the Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2 lists as we have them in our Bibles today anyway. But they are obviously essentially the same list and if you want some detailed information about the list please consult our study of Ezra chapter 2. Well, I'd like to borrow a brief summary of this chapter from the esteemed scholar H.G.M. Williamson who I think does a wonderful job of seeing the spiritually important principles that are contained in a chapter that on the surface seems mostly about dry bookkeeping. He comments in this way. 
as Nehemiah may have regarded the discovery of the list of the families who made up the core of the population as administratively fortuitous, we should not overlook its present theological statement. Those who should rightly populate the city of God, Jerusalem, stand in direct continuity with the community who had earlier experienced God's redemption in the second exodus, that is the return from Babylon. We too would do well to remember that necessary as bricks and mortar or organizational structures may be, Christ's church is neither founded nor is it maintained by these things alone. It is they who have experienced the grace of God for themselves who become members of Christ's bride, the new Jerusalem. Now I'm ending this lesson with this statement for a couple of reasons. First, because I think he is right on in his points. But second, because of the last few words of this statement that might have startled some of you, especially if you've been raised up in a modern evangelical church environment. And this statement is that Christ's bride is the new Jerusalem. A statement I'm in full agreement with. Why would Mr. Williamson think this? Why would I concur? Because despite what we often hear about the identity of the bride of Christ as being the church, in fact, the bride of Christ is the New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem consists of the redeemed city inhabited by its redeemed people. The city and the people cannot be separated and they are spoken of as a unity as an entity. Listen to Revelation 19 verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory for the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Fine linen, bright and clean has been given her to wear. Moving on to Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth it passed away. The sea was no longer there. And I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Revelation 21, 9 and 10. And one of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me. And he said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me off in spirit to the top of a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. New Jerusalem is Christ's bride. The organic connection between Israel, Jerusalem, the redeemed, and Yeshua's bride couldn't be stronger. And this is why we must together continue to work to realize our Hebrew faith roots. We must comfort Israel. We must learn about the Torah and the entire Word of God. And we need to inspire those of both the Christian and Jewish communities who are currently oblivious 
to this connection, to open their eyes. We'll take up Nehemiah chapter 8 next time.